You are listening to the EdTech Takeout from Grantwood AEA, an educational service agency that supports school districts in eastern Iowa with a focus on equity, excellence, and efficiency in education for all children. Welcome to episode 26 of the EdTech Takeout, the podcast that serves up bite-sized technology tips for teachers. My name is Jonathan Wiley, and as always, I am joined by the amazing Mindy Carney. Oh, amazing. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. You got it. We'll stick with that. Yeah, we have a huge, huge lineup of new menu items, news and updates today. I think we need to just hop in, plow through them. Let's do it. Okay. The first one's got your name written all over it, Mindy. It does. It does. So um, Seesaw added drive integration to um, their system all probably in the last couple weeks or so. And it was always a pretty seamless um, integration between Seesaw and Google Drive, but you always had to add the link. And now what they've done is added um, the Google Drive component. So when you're sharing or you want to add items into Seesaw, you can pull them directly from Drive, which is nice. Um, the only thing about it that I think is still a little bit of a holdup for me, I'm not really sure. You know, I'm not in the classroom, so I don't know exactly if this is a good or bad thing, but... Um, When it pulls it from Drive, it creates it as a PDF in Seesaw. It does not make it a collaborative document, so it loses those privileges. Um, But if you add in the link like you would previously, then, of course, it allows you to um, use it as a collaborative document. So, um, But pretty seamless, nice and easy for younger students as well. And um, I think it was a good add-on for Seesaw. Yeah, definitely. I think this was a popular one when it was announced. I saw lots of people tweeting and sharing this one on social media. So that's a good one. I was going to ask you a question on this. I don't know if you know the answer and we can cut this bit out. I probably do. Let's be serious. Okay. So if somebody added um, a drive file that was not shared with other people right. and does it automatically get sharing permissions added to it or, or not? Nope, it'll come up as an error of some sort or it won't let you add it. So you do have to share or change sharing permissions before you can add it into Seesaw. Good to know. Get that done yep. ahead of time, eh? Yep, yep. See, I told you I'd know the answer. You do know the answer. They yep. don't call you a Seesaw ambassador for nothing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's where. That's why I wear the crown. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's this about uh, patenting makerspace products? Um, so I came across this article... Um, about a middle school who started talking to their students about patenting their innovative ideas and what kind of process you have to go through if you want to patent something. Mm -hmm. And um, in that article, and I'll link it into the show notes, they talk about the United States Patent and Trademark Office, which I'm not going to lie, didn't really even know existed. I'm not an inventor. So I guess this wasn't something I realized was a resource, but apparently they've got like a whole section um, that kind of talks is the focus is for kids, I guess is what I should say. So um, it's a really great resource if you want to talk to your kids a little bit about that process and what it entails to um, actually put a patent on one of your products. um, But I thought it was kind of interesting thing, you know, a follow up to the makerspace um, episode that we have and um, maybe talking to kids about what happens if you've got this really great idea what should you do next yeah I like that because you know we're encouraging this new maker culture of kids and inventors and creating new things but yeah that's the next logical step that if you don't 
protect something amazing, then somebody else is going to steal yeah. it off you. Right. And I guess there must be some sort of database in there or something that you can um, search pretty easily if there are other products out there that already kind of resemble your idea. So and that's usually a huge part, a huge component, I think, of of that process is finding if somebody else has already had that idea. And I guess it's I mean, from what the blog post said, and I haven't done dug into it very much, but that it's a pretty easy way to check and see if there's other products out there like yours. I'm going to give you a seamless segue on this from you are from this story to one of the next stories because you're mm-hmm. going to talk about fidget spinners in a minute, aren't you? Yes. Okay. So, do your kids have fidget spinners? Have you gotten into this? Well, let me tell you the the seamless segue. It was oh. the lady that invented this originally took it to a whole bunch of to- toy companies and things, right. and it never got made. And the story that I read was that she never got around to getting a patent application put forward because she couldn't afford the initial patent fee. Mm -hmm. And so the idea just kind of was out there for anybody to use. And lo and behold, however many years later, when fidget spinners are taking over the world, um, yeah, there was no patent on that original design. And she could have been multimillionaire by now, I'm sure, if she had still got the patent on that original design. But Mm -hmm. uh, other people are taking advantage of that now. Yeah, did you, um, I heard about this too, and so I might be misquoting, but that she, somebody must have asked her a question about it, and she's like, I'm just happy that kids are using them. Did you, she wasn't upset about it or anything? Well, that's what she's saying publicly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. She's sitting at home at night super upset about the whole thing. Well, yeah, I I think she, I mean, it was originally created for like like her son or something, wasn't it? And so she's probably pleased that, that kids are you know, using it the way that she intended as well. It's not yeah. been warped or twisted to be something right. else. Yeah, so um, my kids love fidget spinners. They've only been in our house for a little while. I love fidget spinners. Um, I'm obsessed with it. I find it super soothing. And um, I just saw this picture on Facebook today about, um, you know, those, the uh, I think we call them whirly dids, you know, the little things that fall from the tree, the helicopters. Do you know what I'm talking yes. about? Is, okay. Yeah how that was the 1980s version of the fidget spinner and I thought oh that's really clever like Uh. it's the same sort of soothing thing to me like throwing them up in the air and watching them spin down I thought oh yeah that's a good that's a good uh resemblance of that but anyway where I was going with this fidget spinner thing is um, I know lots of schools maybe have a opinion about fidget spinners that is not necessarily um in favor of it or they find them distracting to kids. So um, what I found was there is a fidget spinners like 3D, I don't know, what do you call it? A 3D prototype or whatever that you can print your own 3Ds um, or print your own fidget spinner. And I thought, what a great idea. Like a way to kind of find something that kids are super interested in and kind of have them figure out a way to create their own fidget spinner and if you want to use a fidget spinner, that's great, but we're going to create our own. And I thought it kind of tied into some of that makerspace stuff that we've been talking about, too. Oh, great idea. So there's some downloadable designs on Thingiverse yeah. that you've linked to. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I like that. But you wouldn't even have to use the design. You wouldn't even have to 3D print them. You could just try and find a way to make your own with the materials we have in our classroom or whatever. So, I don't know, just a different twist on it, I guess. Yeah, I was at one of our districts recently, and they just got a new 3D printer, and lo and behold, that's what they were they were printing. They just printed out. The only thing that you can't print for them, I think, is like the bearings. You need to have 
bearings that will fit in your design, however you yeah. get that printed out. But sure. um, that aside, 3D printers are a great way to do that. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Capitalize on that trend. Yeah, right. Uh, so something else new, and I have no seamless uh, segue for this one, <laughs> <laughs> was that uh, since the last time we were on the air, uh, there's been a new version of Google Earth for the web. And we were just talking to each other thinking, did we talk about this already or not? It feels like we've talked about it, but maybe we haven't talked about it on the podcast. So if you missed it somewhere, mm-hmm. Google has now got an online version of Google Earth. Mm-hmm. It used to be like a Mac or a PC app that you had to download to your to your laptop. But now um, makes sense because Google's big on Chromebooks and making those Chromebooks. You can now view Google Earth online on a Mac, PC, or a Chromebook. Doesn't work on iOS yet, but um, it works on uh, laptop type devices. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It just makes it a little bit more uh, accessible to lots of different people. I remember the first time. I heard about Google Earth and I'm like, oh my gosh, you can type your address in. And the first thing I did was typed in my address, of course, because I thought I'm going to be out in the backyard like yelling at my kids. That's the <laughs> that's going to be. <laughs> I was doing a workshop once when, and people were doing exactly the same thing the first time they'd seen it. And then somebody's like, wait, if I go outside and wave, are you guys going to see me? <laughs> it's not a live view, folks. <laughs> it, it's not a live view, correct, yes. <laughs> And I thought, so, oh my gosh, uh, but, that'll be permanently me out there, like shaking my finger at my kids. Oh, that'd be awful. I want to say there's a picture of Gina Rogers on Google Street View. How am I not surprised by that? She showed us this before. I think this might have been before you started at Grand Woodman. Yeah, I've never heard this story. I think there was like her kid's birthday party outside or something. I don't, I don't want to talk too much about it, but yeah. um, ask her to show you that and uh, see if it's still there. Oh, I will. <laughs> I'll put that in the show notes if I can find it. Yeah, you should do. That'd be a fun one. <laughs> okay, so another makerspace type thing that I found. I don't know if you saw this or not, Mindy, but I thought you might appreciate this. The website you have shared before as a tech nugget, instructables.com. They have oh, yeah. a they have a premium membership uh, that you can pay for, but you can use the site for free as well. You get a few extras on the premium one, but they've now opened it up and said teachers can have the premium membership for free. Really? That is a tech nugget. Yeah. You should have so, saved that for the end. That's a finale. Well, it's kind of follow-up. Yeah, I know. It's kind You're of right. We have talked about it. So, yeah. I think the premium membership, I'm looking at it now, it gives you like ebook downloads, PDF downloads. Um, it gives you less advertising. It lets you view all the steps at once instead of like step one, click, step two. Yeah, click. You right. can just view all the steps. And you can create private instructables too. So one that you oh, don't necessarily have to share with that. the community. Huh. So, Yeah. Teachers, we will put a link in the show notes yeah. for you where you can click. There's a Google form you have to fill out, and it basically asks you who you are, what you teach, what school you teach at, mm-hmm. and things like that. And once you fill in all that, I presume they will um, verify that information sure. and uh, give you that premium account. That's that's great. Happy to hear that. Normally $35. What else you got? You got a good one here, if I know where you're going next. I got a lot of Padlet updates. Yes. And I know we've talked on the show before about how much, uh, you know, I do to promote the uh, Padlet brand and yes. as a Padlet yes. ambassador. You wear the Padlet crown as well. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. So um, Padlet just keep coming out with new stuff. They came out with a new thing even today as as we're recording. Really? Um, yeah, and they've got some new layouts. So um, huh. the the newest one they've got is called the Padlet Shelf, where you can organize your Padlet into columns, kind of like if you've ever seen uh, Trello or something like that. Um, you can have you know like four or five columns of, mm-hmm. of Padlet. So you could do like KW, K, they have some examples here right. like KWL charts or weekly planners or things like mm-hmm. that where you would, you know, put things into like projects where I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and different steps of things. So as well as the grid and the free form and those kind of things, you can do a shelf. Um, speaking of the grid layout, the grid layout now lets you drag and drop posts in any order you want. So you can rearrange the, the post order. So when everybody's throwing their ideas up there and you can say, okay, well, let's start with this one and drag this one up first and then put them in the order that you want to have them. And the final kind of layout change they've got here, they've got one called Canvas. And uh, what that lets you do is it lets you connect ideas together in a kind of a flowchart or mind map type thing by dragging arrows and boxes between things. So you can have a very ordered flow to your posts on there. So I think that could be interesting. Yeah, you know, um, Palette was always great, but it was a little bit um, locked down to its couple different ways of using it. And wow, they've really just opened up a whole new ballgame for themselves. It's a great tool and continues to kind of evolve into other things. So if you're not using Padlet, really take a look at it because it's amazing. And it's free. And it's free. It yeah. doesn't get much better than that, right? What have you got here from uh, Tony Vincent? Um, okay, well, I can't give much background on this. I just saw this tweet yesterday and was like, huh, I had never thought of this. So he is... Um, I. He's hosting like a workshop, right, for Google Draw. Have you seen this? I did see that online. And you know how I feel about Google Draw. So I tried to sign (laughs) up for it because I thought this, yep, I'm going to give it a try because I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, And of course, it was closed. I'm sure it closed up in 15 minutes. But anyway, um, I saw this tweet. He was once again talking about his uh, Google Draw workshop. And then he replied to... um, it's saying you can create with Google Drawings and then can import them into green screen by doing and use them as your background or All use right. them as a foreground, I suppose, if you want to create a logo. You know, sometimes we do that sure. here where we have a the top layer is a logo or whatever. But, oh, I didn't I didn't even think about that. I mean, it makes sense. It's not like. Oh, I wonder how he did that. I mean, it makes sense, but I thought, huh, that was that's something I had never even thought of before. You could create some really fun kind of graphics, um, like for a newsroom or something, and put that inside of Google Draw, and then just yeah, pull it into green screen by doing because yeah, that's one of the hardest things. It's like finding the right picture for yeah. what you need. Yeah, if you could just like create your own, then yeah, well, why I not? can't create my own. But well, if you. If you if, took Tony's class, then if you I probably took, could. I know. Thanks a lot, Tony Vincent. Let me in. Knock, knock, knock. <laughs> do, I have a, in. Do, do I need Let to have in. a word with Tony Vincent for you? Yeah, maybe? I mean, you guys are besties, yeah. right? Wow. Come on. Work your magic, <laughs> Wiley. I'll see if I can pull some strings for you. Jeez. Oh, maybe he would just like to host a one-on-one class. Help me out. <laughs> I need a special tutor. <laughs> I think you might need that one-to-one support. I yeah. know. I know. I, it's fine. That's why I like auto-draw. <laughs> <laughs> <a question> for me. <laughs> yeah, we shared that one. That's a good one. Yes, yeah, yep. 
something else we shared recently, we talked about um, Book Creator, which was the editors coming to the web this summer. And it's still not there yet, but they've had a little interim update where instead of uh, publishing your book as a PDF or saving it to iBooks or things like that or sending it to Google Drive, you can now publish it to the web. And you have a link to the book that you can share with anybody so they can view it whether they've got iPads or Book Creator app or, or not. So that's kind of an interesting one. At the moment, it's free. They've said uh, they're just going to see how popular it is because obviously oh. they've got server space and things to pay for for all that storage online, yeah. which they don't normally have. Um, have to worry about that. Have to worry yeah. about. So um, take advantage of it. It's but a if new... they're going to be doing the web-based thing, they're going to have to have some of that. For sure, yep. Yeah, they're going to so... need to have that at some point. And maybe they're thinking further down the line they're going to charge for that web-based uh, editor. Or maybe that editor's going to save to Google Drive or more places like that. But, um, yeah. So I'm wondering, do you know this? When they publish it to the web, is it still just, maybe you said this, is it just PDF or can you do the video too? Um, it's like a interactive book. Oh, it is. Yeah, Even it online, turns pages good. and everything. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. Can, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of like an EPUB. Yeah, right. Okay. I got an email from Mindy and Osmo. <laughs> um, and... It said uh, they're releasing a new add-on for the Osmo called Osmo Coding Jam. And it's kind of an extension of the coding blocks that we've talked about here before in the past, yeah. I think. Yep. Except that uh, the blocks, instead of uh, steering this character around a maze and collecting berries and all that good stuff that he does, um, the blocks will do different like rhythmic patterns or musical sound effects. And so you so you start layering it up kind of like in different tracks where you would do like a like a bass line and then you would do like a um a guitars line and you put all the tracks together and you basically you're you're jamming you're putting all these instruments together to make a a creative musical experience by using these coding blocks so That's kind of a neat idea. Yeah, so it's called uh Osmo Coding Jam, but it could be something to take a look at over the summer if you have yeah. Osmos in your school. Yeah, yep. All right, so we have a very special guest with us today. Her name is Julie Freed and she works with us here at Grantwood AEA and she is the assistive technology team lead. And that's merely a title for what you do, Julie, but I know that you wear many hats at Grantwood. So do you want to share a little bit about what you do here at Grantwood AEA? Sure, and thanks for the invitation to join you today. Uh, briefly, in a nutshell, um, I lead an assistive technology team of eight regional Grantwood AEA staff. And our purpose is to support IEP teams who work with students with identified um, disabilities uh, in the areas specifically of reading and writing. And then my background is also that of a speech-language pathologist. So I also serve to support students with moderate to significant communication difficulties um, and establishing and setting up communication systems for them. So it's a use of a wide variety of technology tools um, creatively to try to support the needs of individual students. Which keeps you very busy, doesn't it, Julie? It does, but it's certainly <laughs> a exciting <laughs> profession. Yeah. Well, um, the reason we're having this podcast is because Julie and Jonathan and I got in this discussion like three weeks ago 
about digital note-taking. And in the middle of the conversation, we're like, we need to stop and do a podcast. So we kind of stopped our conversation. It was a month ago, so it's probably um, going to be a fresh new conversation for us. But So we're going to talk a little bit about um, digital note-taking and what that means. So what would you say we need to know about digital note-taking, Julie? Well, one of the things I think that came up in our earlier conversation, um, and as I've worked with students, is that the process of note-taking, when you break it down, is actually much more complex um, than some might think of. So often when you think, let's take notes, or everyone get ready to take notes on this lecture, or let's go find information on the web, um, I think that everyone has in their own mind a vision of what that might look like. And I guess I might suggest that we maybe need to consider um, that a little differently and also start to ask the question about how do our students actually learn to take notes um, effectively and efficiently? Um, and when does that happen? How is that included in our classrooms? Um, had that conversation at a district meeting. It was really very interesting, even within that single district, um, there wasn't really a clear understanding of well, when do students learn how to be effective and efficient note takers? The more we use uh, technology in schools, the more that we're thinking about digital note taking and different tools for digital note taking. What's your um, what's your thoughts on the whole uh, debate between digital and analog note taking? Mm -hmm. I think that's a great question, and I think my response to that would be. It really depends on the student that we're talking about. Okay. I think that we might make some generalizations, you know, if we're a one-to-one -one school and we want everyone to be doing it digitally, and that could very well be appropriate for the majority, but there are going to be individual students for a variety of reasons who may be better in one uh, arena than another. For example, I think of right away, you know, handwriting notes uh, for students that have difficulty reading their own writing. Um, we have students that do that and then report later, well, I can't read what I wrote. And so for them, it, it seems to be pretty obvious that the analog or the paper pencil version of note taking might not be, be an appropriate or the best means for them, even though perhaps they're most familiar with it. And so then the consideration of doing that digitally would seem to rise to the top. Do you see much of a uh, distinction between, say, like taking notes with a pen or pencil and taking notes with a digital pen or pencil or like a, a stylus or an Apple pencil or mm -hmm. something like that, that? Again, I think that is very individual for kids that we've worked with. I can't say that one's better or worse. The thing that I know about doing things digitally is that the editing process is much easier um, it seems to be, it's been reported, there's even some self-reflections by adults that have been um, diagnosed with uh, dyslexia or dysgraphia, and the reports are, I much prefer the digital version because I can easily correct um, and rewrite than when I'm with a pencil and I'm erasing with an eraser, making holes in the paper. So again, I think it's back to individual preferences and needs. Yeah, you know, I think um, what's interesting, too, about notes is that um, there are so many processes involved in note-taking. So you're not only trying to take in the information that is being shared with you, but also trying to write it down, write it down in a way that you're going to remember. Or a lot of times what I see would see kids doing is they're trying to write it down word for word for word. Mm -hmm. And it's so important, I think, too, to, and you kind of talked about this just a little bit, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about what strategies there are for kids 
um, not just about getting the information down on paper or into a device, but the actual note-taking strategies that will make them successful note-takers. I recently had the opportunity to hear Shelley Haven give an informative webinar on note-taking, and we'll be sure to include her links to her website and those resources for those that might be interested. She broke this down um, into four kind of parts of note-taking, which I think might address you know, not only the strategies that we'd want to be teaching or introducing, but also maybe the tools that need to be available. And that is uh, the process, first of all, is just capturing or gathering the information um, that the student's going to want to use later. Um, that's kind of like step one. And then there are tools that allow us to, to break that down. And then there's the organization. So once you capture it, that's just the start. Even if you can type or you can handwrite your notes, however you choose to do that, you then have to have a means to really go back and organize um, I think of assignments where students actually, it's not a lecture where you would just be listening and taking notes. We kind of think of that as note taking typically, mm -hmm. yep. but also you think about what if they have to research, you know, for a paper and they have to learn to go out and take notes basically from um, the web um, resources that they access that way. And then how do I pull that information from that type of media source um, and bring it back into my learning that might go along with what was presented in class or just independent um, on our own to create a report. And then it's obviously reviews. So if I'm taking notes to study later, then I've got to have a means to make sure I can put that in a format either that I can refer back to or that will eventually be organized in such a way that I can pull it together to create the end product. Yeah, so capture... Organize, research, and review. I like that. Yeah, that I, that really resonated with me when I heard that uh, from the the woman that was giving the presentation, and I thought, you know, she's she's on to something there. And I think that as I walked away from that, I started to ask myself, well, what are the tools or the parts of that? So if you start to break it down, um, and even if you are looking at perhaps like a single tool that your um, district might identify that we're going to offer this, whether that would be sometimes people think of things like Word or Google Docs or whatever um, that tool might be to support the note-taking process. I think we need to ask ourselves then is, well, you know, there are a lot of other forms or times when that information needs to be captured, organized, and then you know, in a manner that I can actually use it meaningfully later. And so I, I don't know, I think of like the lectures where they put PowerPoint slides up or the teacher writes on a, a whiteboard or even on a, a dry erase board. And then how do the students, especially those who might struggle with keeping up with that rate of presentation, how do they get that information? How could they capture it? And I think that's a conversation that you can do globally as a district have that, like, well, how would we have our kids do that um, meaningfully? Sometimes the teachers provide copies of their notes. I think that's probably the most familiar that I've heard. Um, and that's certainly one option. But if you're using a whiteboard, you could use the screen capture um, features that are usually built into that software. And I think even just of allowing kids to snap pictures, whether that's of important notes, you know, we have that cell phone issue, but, um, Many of our devices now, too, can capture um, screenshots and even have the camera built in. I think of iPads and some of the um, netbooks, too, now have that rear-facing camera um, so that they can go up. But kids all have a cell phone. So if nothing else, at least uh, providing that as an option rather than a barrier for them. Yeah, there's that Internet meme that 
it goes around every so often you see it and it says okay kids you can now take notes and it's all the yeah. students standing in front of the whiteboard with cell phones yeah. taking a picture of the notes on the board yeah, and exactly it makes exactly. me go it makes me go back though to your your four point capture organize research and review and how much of you know the the organizing or the the reviewing is or the research is is getting done in that they're just doing the capture part and so right. you know i and think there's it's so important much more. to yeah to go back to that and uh Make, make those notes worthwhile. Right. And and what I those examples I just shared, you know, I think about those are really when the media or the content is presented visually, you know, yeah. from the teacher. So, you know, then you go, well, what about in a lecture? You know, how are students going to capture when the teacher's not providing notes and they're not having something on the smart board that's written and they're just talking? And there are, you know, every classroom is set up with those different kinds of demands for capturing information. And so mm -hmm. I think of especially students that um, I work with specifically, but there's lots of kids for whom don't have necessarily IEPs and simply aren't, it's a very difficult cognitive task to listen and to also write at the same time. Um, and they tend to be, you know, if they're really good with listening comprehension, I think then we're challenged to identify maybe that's what they need to be doing primarily, but how could they then also be still capturing this audio information. Um, and there are tools, you know, we, um, I know you guys are familiar with them, but I think of things like the live scribe pen, yep, um, good one. or yep. their iPad apps. Um, I know one of my favorite, I think Jonathan, you actually are the one that got me started with notability mm -hmm. and, um, you know how that's one that kind of blends in the ability to capture the audio recording. It also has some of the other visual ability to snap pictures and import, um, and take notes kind of in real time. Um, and I know like LiveScribe Pen, um, if you do have people that, that's kind of a combination in my mind between analog and digital, um, where they still, if they physically prefer to use a pen to take notes, um, utilizes a special notebook and then links in real time those notes to the audio that's being captured. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the key point, key features of like the LiveScribe and Notability and audio note, those types of things, where it just it syncs the notes with the audio uh, mm -hmm. so that you can hear what was said at the time when you are reviewing those written notes, either digital written notes or analog written notes. But I think that's a really cool feature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do too. And I think that, um, you know, you could continue to go on. Just think the classroom, I guess my point is um, there are so many different formats that information is delivered to our students today in the classrooms, which is so exciting. And you guys, I know, have had podcasts about lots of ways that you can engage kids in that. I think that from my perspective, when I'm seeing kids who are struggling um, to keep up with some of the demands of the, well, sometimes even the reading, because if you move to something where the text is um, more in a printed format, whether that be digital print or paper, um, is how do they then, then they're reading, if they have reading difficulties, that can actually present a unique challenge of its own. And we have to talk about, well, how can they gather information from content or maybe even have that access through a text reader that will read aloud that content. And then they can use some kind of digital highlighting tool to actually, uh, grab and capture that information. So, um, maybe this is a topic for another podcast here, but one of the things I'm, I'm, coming across to me from the way you're describing all these different ways of presenting the information, the visual, the auditory, the text is, is about UDL and universal mm -hmm. design for learning. Is that playing a, a big part in this type of arena too? Well, 
I, I think absolutely. And I think, um, honestly, one of the, the most exciting parts of my job, to be honest, is that I get to sit by you guys, Mindy and Jonathan and the rest of the team that are in digital learning that are really creating resources and identifying those supports for the gen ed classroom. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through the things that you all share with me in terms of what's out there and what's, you know, new on the horizon. And I think, you know, that's really where we want to go. And it's just that as I look at those tools, we kind of are able to engage in some of these conversations about, well, what's the universal applicability? You know, like that tool is designed for this purpose, but do you know what it also offers for kids who maybe have some of these other barriers? So yeah, the universal design for learning, I think that digital learning and assistive tech are definitely uh, coming together, if you will, um, in terms of crossing over. And, and I now, like any of the things I've even mentioned previously, used to be thought of more specifically as um, assistive technologies. They're now really becoming universal accessibility um, technologies, and kids are just getting to pick how they learn best. Um, and note-taking is just one of the many tasks I think that our kids um, in the classroom are being challenged to figure out. And I guess what I've seen is it's more than just the tools that, you know, we could sit here and talk about tools probably all day that are out there. And, and that's important to know. But I think there's also the conversation about instruction and how do we help students really learn to do this well. I think, Mindy, you brought that up at the beginning. That was kind of the the essence of our first conversation um, when we started to talk was simply about, you know, we're making a big assumption that every student knows how to take notes. And, and some of them may have the skills to do that, but they really have not had the strategies um, and there really isn't a, a good answer yet that I've heard back in terms of when that's introduced. Um, you think in your own life, how did you all learn to take notes? And I asked mm -hmm. myself that. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, some of it is knowing about how you learn best, you mm -hmm. know, and knowing yourself so much. Um, and if you're taking notes in one certain way, but you learn best by drawing pictures or, you know, mm -hmm. then yep. unless we're hopefully – um, sharing with kids all the different ways that you can take notes. You know, your one or two ways might not work. Somebody might learn how to do that, but it might not mm -hmm. be great when they go back to, um, you know, the reviewing of those notes. They might mean nothing to them. So I think it really is important for us to talk to kids about the best way that they learn and, you know, what would be the most useful strategy for them, not just for us. Exactly. And that's really like the fourth piece of that was that review and study. Like, how are you right. going to use that? And but not to the neglect of forgetting, first of all, we need to make sure we're providing a means for students in their preferred learning uh, mode uh, to, you know, not only just to capture, organize, but then to really um, and research, but also then to be able to review that content. And what do I do with it now? And um, that is a real dance, I think, between learning strategies that work for you the best to reflect that learning and then also the tools that you need to be successful in that process so okay julia um why don't you walk us uh through maybe a few tools that you've come across that would be good for organizing notes because i know speaking personally one of the reasons i moved to digital note taking was because i lost all my papers and i had i was really bad at organizing things <laughs> i didn't want binders and and all that stuff lying around so um i went to digital uh, notes mm -hmm. where where could students and teachers uh organize their notes online? Well, you know, I think that again, I, as I started off at the beginning, you know, saying that many of these things have to match the individual's learner preferences or needs. This one 
that I would say that again, but I would also add it also needs to align with the district system for organization. So if mm. you're, for example, um, in a Google school and you're looking for a tool to help you perhaps serve like as a digital notebook, I would certainly want that tool to align well for my sharing of documents across and with other people in the district, whether that be the instructors or other students, you know, if you're looking for opportunities to collaborate versus something that would stand alone and not at least, um, at least it would have to be designed to export into that system at a minimum. Does that make sense? Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. absolutely. It's a good point. Mm-hmm. So I've seen students where we, and, and maybe that's part of our, um, you know, getting excited about all these tools um, initially is we've introduced a tool. I'll use the example of an iPad app when that was um, even initially when they came out and there were the whole array of choices, maybe wasn't quite as broad, um, nor were the ability or was the ability to export those files that were being created within them mm-hmm. to the kind of systems at the school. So if they are a Google school, I would love to know that I can export wherever I'm taking notes pretty seamlessly into Google Drive so that I could actually be dropping that in a folder for the teacher or et cetera, without having to do the extra step of attaching and emailing. And we had kids that were doing things like that because we hadn't thought ahead enough. Yeah, so not necessarily Google Apps tools, but uh, like Docs and Keep and things like that, but just things things that will export or back up to Google Drive, like uh, Notability and Mm -hmm. and other other things like that. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be, um, when you're talking about tools like, uh, we didn't get into a lot of the tools with um, text, you know, in terms of extracting highlights and things, but um, there are tools that are compatible and really tightly woven for um, Chrome, for the Google environment, things like Read and Write for Google, Snap and Read, Kurzweil, there are others. You know, the vendors have gotten smarter in terms of setting up for that, but I think that's an important thing um, to definitely be considering. I know other people have used, like, even on the 365, um, you know, they have OneDrive. So um, you can look within whatever platform, I think, that you're operating within uh, to get ideas of where you might want to organize your information best. Um, And if you do it outside of the basic, like if you need additional supports through some other tool, like let's use Notability, um, for example, then I want to make sure it's going to be that tool's going to export directly into wherever I want to store. So there just needs to be a little forward thinking. Um, but any and all of those. I know Evernote, a lot of people uh, enjoy using that. It's kind of their digital notebook. Dropbox is another one. So I think there are options but um, that are all good, and you could argue for any of them based on certain you know, features. But I think most importantly, we're looking at efficiency. So... Um you know, we've kind of talked a little bit about uh, different strategies for note-taking and how there can be so many different processes involved. Um, what would you say are some of the individual student barriers that you're seeing or areas of difficulty that are impacting our students when um, note-taking right now? Okay. Well, uh, this is a great question because um, I think the research in the field of assistive tech anyway has shown that one of the the highest number of requests for support is around writing. And that includes note-taking. So it's a little bit of a broader jump, but I think when we're talking about note-taking, we're talking about students' ability to 
capture information, as we said, and often that's done during the writing process um, with whatever tool or stage of consideration that we're talking about. And I think we have students, because writing is complex, we have students that have different strengths and areas of of let's say need or maybe that aren't quite as um, they aren't as proficient at. And that could be anything from legibility of handwriting, which I mentioned earlier. Um, it could be the ability to organize information. Um, sometimes that we have students that excel at that um, and they can do the Roman number one, A, B, C, one, two, three kind of format. We have others that do better with a visual representation to organize their ideas. So I think of things like graphic organizers, mm -hmm. um, web mapping tools. There are a lot of those out. So I think that's another piece that can be equally as difficult. Um, we often think if they just get their ideas down, they should get it. Or if I give the teacher's notes to the student, the student now should have success yeah, with right. capturing the information. And that is not always delivered in the format that's best for the student. Uh, interestingly enough, it's usually provided in the means that makes the most sense to the teacher. So again, going back, Jonathan, to what you said about universal design for learning, I think that's another thing as an educator that we need to be considering is how are we delivering information? Are we providing options um, for how that can be conveyed to students? And then I mentioned earlier um, the reading. I didn't mention spelling. Um, if a student has the ability to handwrite, but struggles in the area of how to spell the words, the whole task of, of note-taking, especially with paper, pencil, is it becomes quite difficult. You can obviously figure out, you know, if you can't spell the word and you're trying to transpose what they said into a simpler word you can spell, um, the whole task of um, handwriting, we have a lot of kids that just give up and put the pencil down. Um, and so instead, those would be students for whom we would tend to... Um, support the use of digital note-taking because there's also lots of supports just for the task of writing, not even adding on the complexity of note-taking and the other things we talked about, but simply back just to the process of how do I get my ideas on paper? And so we can use things like word prediction. We can have them maybe not get so close, but the spell checker or catch it. Um, we can also um, just have them write short phrases down um, and go back later then and do editing. That's much easier to do often in a digital format. Um, the one downside I would mention sometimes with keyboarding is we have uh, some students that um, not only struggle uh, with handwriting, uh, the motor ability of handwriting, but they, all, they struggle equally with the motor task of keyboarding. Um, and so then moving more to an audio version, um, and if they're converting or creating their own writing, later trying to write a paper, we may need to be even be looking at speech to text. So they have the ability again, um, like we mentioned, to even represent their learning in a variety of means as well as to capture it. Okay, well, just for fun, I'm going to put my uh, two co-hosts on the spot here, and I'll take a turn too, but... Uh... How do, how do you two capture, organize, research, and review notes yourselves? Like when you go to a conference or you're taking notes at a meeting or, or things like that, what, what's your workflow and uh, what does that look like for you guys? Um, that's a good question. I would say when I am learning about something new, I always handwrite my notes because I often um, kind of figure out what new things I've learned and where to place them with things I've already learned. And so I have a notebook that I um, have. I do a little bit of sketch noting, but mostly just with fonts and things like that. I'm not much of a um, illustrator, but I do kind of mess with sketch noting a little bit. 
Um, and then after I kind of like really hammered down resources that I really like, I create a Google Doc um, in my drive and just start making a list of those resources that I think are most beneficial because a lot of times I get asked for my resources for things. Um, so I guess I do a little bit of both. All right, Mindy. So you've got kind of a multi-tiered approach going on there, where it's just all I filtering do. down to like the final level of the like the master copy. So yeah, it's like March Madness for resources. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Julie, the digital note-taking guru, what is what does your workflow look like? Well, you know, this is a really thoughtful question. Now I've had to stop and think about, you know, how do I do it? And it really does vary just like it does for our students in the classroom on how, where I am and what's being delivered or what I'm trying to capture notes about. And so I think of just like at the recent conferences I've been to um, this past year and both times, you know, you have your presenter handouts provided ahead of time. I always bring those into my iPad, actually, and I use Notability because I can annotate, draw, highlight. Uh, I can do a lot of the things that I want to do, and then I can easily store those and organize them right within that app or and or they back up automatically then into my Google Drive so that I can then share those annotations as well as the handout as I need to or refer back to them. So for just that quick capture, I love that. Um, but when I think about like research, which I've been doing some of that related to some other projects I'm involved with, and I think where I'm going online and I'm reviewing articles and I'm trying to like synthesize that information, I've actually been using, um, right now the free version of bubble us. I think I get three web maps and I've got all three used and then you have to get rid of the one you you know, that was old or get the premium. So I'm actually thinking about you know, purchasing that for my own use, because I found that that's a great way to create a flow of information. And it helps me kind of, um, when I'm trying to synthesize, um, that's become a good tool for me. Um, but I wouldn't say that I don't do paper as well. So if I have a lot of resources that I'm trying to pull together, multiple resources, and I think this is my age and how I learned. And so I tend to go back to low tech where I will, if they're research articles, um, that I'm reviewing before I do my web mapping and are trying to put it in a usable form, then I will do that more, I'll call it analog or low tech, where I'll take those articles and I'll do the highlighting. And then I do something similar to Mindy, where I'll take those highlights then and I bring that into Google Docs. So when it's kind of, I synthesize um, on the table and then I put the end result of that or I capture information, you know, kind of low tech. And then I bring that into a Google doc that I then share. So it's interesting. I think, um, you made me kind of stop and think about that. I thought I'm not a digital native, you know, I didn't grow up using digital media and tools. And so I'm really ingrained in how I studied all through college and in my career and review of texts and this shift to digital is a process. And I think it is for our students as well. Very good. Yeah, again, an, another multi-tiered approach. You're, you guys are putting me to shame because mine seems much more simplistic by <laughs> comparison. Simple sometimes is better, too. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm kind of, at the moment, I feel like I'm a, I'm a little bit in flux for this because although I do take digital notes, I I know myself that I don't have a very good recall of that information I'm taking, and it, it makes me now think... that's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> It makes you think of some of those studies that you see where, you know, people say handwriting notes is, is more, uh, is, is better for recall than, than typing notes. 
And I think that's kind of where I am right now. I'd, I'd have to do some experiments with myself and see. I probably wouldn't be able to remember the handwritten ones either. But I spend <laughs> most of my time um, inside OneNote just because it, it fits my workflow and the way I'm organized. And that could be on any number of different devices. It could be on Mac or PC or iPad. Mm-hmm. And just being able to have that notebook available anywhere or on any device. I mean, even if I don't have any of my work devices i can take my phone out and access those notes and see those notes so um on things like the ipad and on uh, windows um one note does have some digital inking tools which i've experimented with a little bit but i am more of a typer and uh mm-hmm. i have i have notebooks i have a notebook here i'm looking at called conferences and uh i've had this for a couple of years now but it goes back to like it's 2013. I started taking some notes in uh, mm-hmm. OneNote here, but I can go back and look at any of these conferences and, and see what's going on. And when I look at my notes again, I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I remember why we wrote that, but ask me what happened at the Mackle conference when I was there <laughs> just two weeks ago, and I probably will not be able to tell you all that mm-hmm. much without looking at my notes first. I think that's so interesting, though, because I think of the the one of the things you mentioned, I think we're all kind of describing it, is the benefits of having universal access. So for many, and I would agree with that, even the, um, for many of us, we've said that that's helpful. And I heard you say like, well, no matter what device you go to, interestingly enough, the vendors are actually now moving to design tools that do exactly the same. I mean, you look at the products that are out there and, um, I think of, of a couple of vendors in particular that are working to provide the supports for reading and writing and outlining and researching. And now they're putting the word universal behind it. Mm, and it's actually yeah. crossing all platforms. And I think, I think they're recognizing exactly what we're all describing is the need to not get locked into just one device, but to have universal access wherever we are, whatever we're using, so we can go back and retrieve that information when we need it. Yeah, I mean, you can have a fantastic Mac app or a fantastic iPad app, but, you know, if mm-hmm. you want, if you're a vendor and you want to appeal to as broad a, an audience as possible and have as many people using your product as possible, you, you really want to get it available on as many devices as possible. So that makes right. sense. Yeah. It does. And more options for students too. Yeah. That's right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Julie. This has been really informative and kind of a fun discussion, and we really appreciate you coming on. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, you're welcome, and thanks for the invitation. I enjoyed it, and um, I just look forward to more collaboration with the two of you throughout the rest of the year and in the future. Oh, you betcha, lady. Sounds good. Right. Thanks, Julie. <laughs> thank you. All right, now on to my favorite part of the show. We're up for tech nuggets. Nuggety, nuggety, nuggety. More nuggets. More nuggets. Get your nuggets. Hot nuggets. (laughs) (laughs) All right, do you want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. Um, I actually came across um, a blog article about the 20... Excellent, 20 excellent YouTube channels for math teachers. And you know what? I had to feel the love for the math teachers because I feel like they sometimes get the short end of the stick. We're always very, very focused on ELA. And I think that sometimes our math people are stuck in the shadows. So I came across this list and thought, oh, this might be something for some of our math teachers to um, take a look at. And um, there's lots of different 
lots of different things um, from elementary school to high school, um, all across the board. So I would suggest taking a look at it, especially over the summer. Um, Not that I'm urging you or encouraging you to work over the summer. suggest you take some time off. But um, if you're looking for something to do, there might be some um, different YouTube channels in there that you haven't haven't heard of before. Yep, always good to add to your toolkit. So there are 20 here to look at. 20, I know, that's a lot. I know. Yeah. It's a good selection. Yeah. I might have to take a look at those and learn some math over the summer. (laughs) (laughs) Lord knows I need it. Um, (laughs) So my tech nugget is uh, coming via Amber Bridge. Um, She shared a a site with us the other day, which I couldn't remember if I'd seen before or not, but I just thought I'd throw it in there because I played with it a bit and I enjoyed it. It's called Scribble Maps. Yep. And they, they say it's the easiest way to draw and share maps with other people. It uses kind of like the Google Earth engine, so we're coming back full circle here with our Google Earth stuff here, but uh, you can jump straight in and uh, do a map even without logging in if you want to just try this out here. There is a VIP version which you can pay for, but you can close that box out and just jump in and play here, and you can go anywhere in the world, zoom in and out. Um, There is a a move tool to move your annotations around. Uh, There's a a paint bucket tool to fill in, like if you wanted to draw a tri- the Bermuda Triangle, you could uh, get those points and join those together and fill it in. You can just do scribbling on the map. You can draw straight lines. You can draw rectangles, circles, squares, polygons, text labels, um, add markers, and change the color of all this stuff too. So I think, you know, I can see lots of different uh, ways to use this, even beyond yeah. the obvious, which is going to be social studies. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you're reading a book or something and you're talking about the character's journey through Europe or something, you can, you know, zoom in really close and see the places they went and plot those points and, yeah. and add some markers and some text along the way. So I could see lots of different ways to include something like this. Yeah, it's kind of a powerful little thing, isn't it? It's like a neat it. little tool. So Yeah, and you can really, I mean, you can zoom in much farther than I thought you were going to be able to when I first pulled it up. Dare so. I ask how far in you zoomed? Um, can well, you see my house? No, I <laughs> Can you see I Gina? <laughs> oh, there she is. There she yep. is. Um, no, I didn't type in an ad- address. I'm just like zooming, zooming. I mean, it gets down to little roads and stuff. I think I'm as far in as I can. Oh. You can see some trees and stuff like that. So, I don't know. It's definitely one to take a look at. I like yep. it. Scribblemaps.com. Good job, Amber Bridge. Thanks for saving Wiley today. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't do this podcast without you, Amber. <laughs> All right. So, um, my next tech nugget comes from Alice Keeler, Google Guru. And, um, she shared the other day, and I didn't know this was possible. I'm not a huge Google Classroom user just because um, lots of people ask me to come and talk about Seesaw. So um, I'm not as familiar with Google Classroom. So whenever I see something new come out about it, I try and read it. And uh, her little blog post here talks about how you can add video straight into Google Classroom. So it's not actually like pulling a video from like your camera roll. But you can record and save it directly into Drive and then post it into Classroom. And the way you do that is by adding an assignment in your mobile device and then you want to um, add an attachment. And depending on what kind of 
mobile device you have, it's either going to say record video or use camera. Right, Wiley? Isn't that what you saw on iOS was use camera? says use camera, yeah. Yeah. So on um, other devices, it might say record video, and then you just record, and it will save directly into your drive. So it's not going to save into Google Classroom, but it will attach it to your assignment in Google Classroom and also save it in your drive. Yeah, I like this. And uh, the thing I thought would be most powerful about this, I mean, I think teachers adding it is great. Students can do the same thing. Nice. So they can submit a video recording as their attachment. And you think about things like Recap and Flipgrid that we've talked about here before, yeah. where students can have that reflection piece. Yes, it could be, right. That could be your assignment. It could be yeah. record a video of you talking about what you thought. That were, and yeah. the students can uh, turn on their mobile devices, do it on their phones, do it on iPads, do it on whatever devices they have access to, and uh, record that reflection. And I feel like this is something that Google Classroom has been missing has been lagging behind about. And so I, I thought that was, I was really excited to see that they had added that option in. Yeah, that's definitely a good one. I like yeah. that. All right, so my last one also comes via somebody else. I saw Shannon Miller write a blog post on this, mm-hmm. and it's called classhook.com. Have okay. you been to that site before? No, I haven't even heard it. I'm going to click on it now. Well, Classhook is a collection of videos from popular culture that have been sorted and curated into a way to teach content to other people. So I think it's a really interesting way to um, use video in the classroom in terms of taking some popular TV shows or movies or clips from things to explain a concept. So the one I watched earlier on today was about homeostasis. Do you know what homeostasis is, Mindy? Um, It sounds super like something with a plant. Um, no. Um, <laughs> I watched this Big Bang Theory video that they had where it says Sheldon explains homeostasis. And it's about two two minutes long or something. And he's basically talking to Penny and he's saying, oh, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of homeostasis. Yeah, you're you're the Penny in this analogy. Yes, right. Um, and he says, I like homeostasis. It's It's stability. It's where things don't change from their current state. I don't think that you and Leonard should break up because it upsets my world a little bit. And uh, he's obviously being kind of selfish in that. But, yeah. you know, this is tagged under science, biology, homeostasis from middle school and high school. And I'm like, Huh, that would be fun, you know, as a yeah. way to introduce that kind of concept to students and show them a, a funny kind of yeah. cultural clip from TV. I bet Big Bang Theory has made it into a lot of those science videos. Would be my I bet it has too, yeah. And I bet Penny is sitting on the couch a lot, looking confused. Probably, yes. Mm-hmm. I feel her pain, yeah. Yeah. So they got Monty Python, they've got American Dad, they've got... All kinds of uh, different stuff on here. The Phineas and Ferb, The Simpsons are in yeah. it a lot. Um, oh, oh, boy. Yeah, all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff here. Life and lessons by The Simpsons. These are life <laughs> lessons, I know. <laughs> Even things like Despicable Me, there's like a one-minute oh. clip. And I, these things are all from YouTube, I think, so yeah. they must be kind of legal clips and, and things like that, I'm sure. <laughs> Fingers crossed, as long as you're recommending it right now. You're like, hey, I hope these are all kosher. <laughs> yep, I'm going to cross my fingers on yeah, this right, one. Right, right. Um, if it's on YouTube, then it's YouTube's responsibility to right. find that and Absolutely. take it down. Right. But if you log in as a teacher, you can add discussion questions and oh. associate a video with certain standards as well and oh. bookmark it and add it to your account and all that kind of good stuff too. So, mm. um, I love this idea. 
Classhook.com. Yeah. We um, used, when I was in the classroom, used a lot of the Disney short films because they were all silent, most mm-hmm. part. You know, they never yeah. really talked. And so we would talk a lot about inferencing or just different literacy components of a story. And because it was nice because you took the words out. So you had to really think about it. And I love teaching with video. I think it's awesome. This is, I wish I would have had this resource. Jeez, where were you three years ago, Wiley? All right. So up to podcast picks, right? Is that where we're headed? Do you have a new podcast to share? Well, here, here's the thing, Mindy. I've got oh. one podcast to share. Oh, slacker. Well, normally I do two. I do like an education one and a non-education one. Yep. In honor of, of our last podcast, which was kind of a crossover episode, I picked a crossover podcast because uh, this one's called Canvas, and it's from uh, Really FM. It's got Fraser Spears and Federico Vitici as okay. the hosts. Now, Fraser Spears works in a school in Scotland. So oh here we go. His school it was the first one-to-one iPad school, oh. which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. And they are still one-to-one with iPads. And so he has a lot of experience in using iPads in, in school. Yeah. And uh, he's also Scottish. So if you happen to like podcasts with Scottish co-hosts, then this would be a good one to, to latch on to, in addition to any others that you happen to be listening to. I think I just threw up in my mouth a little. Oh, okay. And so his co-host is much nicer and than, than mine. His co-host is Federico Vitici, who's an Italian. So we've got a oh. Scotsman and an Italian here. Okay. And Federico Vitici is the editor of uh, MacStories.net. So he does more consumer level and, um, you know, technology side of things. And okay. Fraser Spears is obviously very technical as well. But he'll say things like, well, when my students are using this in school, then the note-taking app they use is this and, and uh-huh. so forth. So it's, it's a great podcast if you're interested in the iPad. It is all about the iPad. They'll take one specific topic like email and they'll talk about all the different email apps, all the tips and tricks for sending email and receiving email on the iPad oh. and things you would never, ever even find out if you spent all day digging through the settings. They've got all the inside tips and tricks. And although I think I know a lot about the iPad, I always learn something from these guys. So Really? That's saying a lot because you do know a lot about the iPad. I know quite a lot about the iPad. I don't know everything about the iPad. So these guys dig deep. And even they will admit themselves. When we were researching this episode, we found out that and things like this. So it's a good one. Check it out. Do you suppose in a different country, someone's recommending our podcast and they're like, yeah, it's like this Scottish guy and this redneck girl from Iowa. I'm sure they're saying that in multiple (laughs) countries. (laughs) Across the world. Yes. International. (laughs) Yes. All right. That, but that's about it, really, isn't I it? I guess, yeah. We're done. I think we've We're been here long enough. I think so, too. We need to be on our way now. So, until next time. This has been the EdTech Takeout. We hope it hit the spot. For more information on today's episode, please visit dlgwaea.org slash podcast. More nuggets. Get your nuggets. Hot nuggets. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.